My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Corey Weir and Mike Mutimer. Weir and Mutimer work in the auto industry in Oshawa, Ontario, and they're members of the union Unifor. Unifor is the largest private sector union in Canada, with over 300,000 members. It was created in 2013 with the merger of the Canadian Auto Workers and the Communication Energy and Paperworkers Union of Canada, and as a result, it represents workers in a wide range of sectors. Weir and Mutimer are not just union members, but are actively involved in their union and in the broader labour movement. Weir is on the Young Workers Committee for Unifor's Durham Regional Environment Council and is the Young Worker Rep on the Durham Region Labour Council, and Mutimer is a member of the Education Standing Committee of Unifor Local 222 and an executive member at large of the Durham Region Labour Council. Not surprisingly, they've had a lot of opportunities over the years to have a lot of informal conversations with other rank-and-file union members, whether that's on the shop floor where they work, at meetings within their local, at meetings of Unifor-based or broader labor movement bodies beyond their local, at conventions, or on social media. And in the course of all of that, they've seen a growing discontent among Unifor members. For some people, that has really focused on the decision by Unifor to accept tiered wages in their auto contracts, meaning new hires make significantly less and have much less access to benefits than long-time workers. For others, it has been the choices that Unifor has made in recent years about how to relate to elections. And for still others, it's more about what they see as the top-down culture within Unifor that discourages critical participation in debate, and the list goes on. In response, Weir, Mutimer, and a number of other Uniform members decided that what they needed to do was create some kind of space in which rank-and-file members of Uniform could engage in debate and discussion outside of the formal structures of the Union. To that end, they founded the Uniform Solidarity Network. At the moment, it exists mainly as a website, solonet.ca. They're looking to publish pieces by uniform members from across the country and from all different sectors, talking about the issues in their workplaces and their locals, and contributing a wide range of perspectives on the big questions facing Unifor and the labor movement as a whole. The network is deliberately horizontal in its structure and is open to a wide range of ideas. The founding members committed the network to a few general principles— rank-and-file democracy, working-class politics, and bargaining positions that will enhance solidarity— but they interpret those deliberately broadly, and they welcome contributions to the site that disagree, debate, and discuss. They hope that over time, this will foster a culture of political engagement and active involvement among a broadening layer of rank-and-file workers. 
In the longer term, they hope that the Unifor Solidarity Network can eventually become a way for rank-and-file members of Unifor across different sectors and different locals to discuss issues, to support each other, and to advance positions within the broader union that can improve workers' ability to take effective action in the face of the very real challenges confronting workers and unions in this age of neoliberalism and of the rise of the alt-right. Weir and Mutimer speak with me about the issues facing Unifor and the labor movement today, and about what they hope the Unifor Solidarity Network can accomplish. We spoke by Skype to phone from Oshawa, Ontario. I'm Corey Weir. I'm an auto worker at a GM facility in Oshawa, a member of Unifor. As far as Solonet goes, we just wanted to create a place for Unifor members and activists to exchange ideas and analysis and work together to support change building around specific objectives that we'll get into in a bit. And I'm Mike Munimer. I'm also an auto worker from Oshawa, part of Unifor Local 222. Part of the reason uh, joining with Solonet with Corey was that we wanted to build a base of support and solidarity where we can foster a healthy and critical debate and ways forward to build our union. And we even welcome detractors as well because we need to build this kind of conversation where we can move forward and create a better way of solidarity. I was born three months premature in 1984 in Toronto. I was at Women's College Hospital and I was in an incubator for four months. When I was checked out of the hospital, there was a bill that my dad didn't have to pay for, but just had to sign. It was over $100,000. And he told me, you know, that's what really politicized him. And it really got to me. He's been a member of the NDP party for quite a long time. And I've always been following him around, helping out, handing out flyers. He was a big activist in our union, leading the Days of Actions campaigns across the country in the 90s, where they actually shut down workplaces. So that kind of thing inspired me throughout my whole life. So I've always been one to want to fight for uh, others because it's been instilled in me from the get-go. As far as myself, I showed up a little bit late to the party. I wasn't born into it like Mike here. But I guess for me, what really, really politicized me was the Occupy movement. I'd just been laid off from General Motors. I'd only been working there for maybe a year or two at that point. I figured, you know what, I'm laid off. I'm going to go down, check out what this is about. I was against capitalism and all the greed at that point, but I really didn't have any sort of analysis. So I was down there for, I guess, 39 days and 40 nights right up until the end. And that was really just a huge eye-opening experience and power and hearing so many different political perspectives and different ideologies and really steeping in that culture and kind of formulating an analysis from that. At the end, I wound up behind the barricades with a couple people. You know, the police had surrounded the park. We were all kind of hunkered down, waiting, you know, wondering what's going to happen. Are they going to come in with force? And then we heard this huge thundering roar coming down the street. And it just so happened that the OFL convention was in town that day. And uh, the OFL is the Ontario Federation of Labour. So, you know, we're peeking out from behind the barricade and there's probably over a thousand people marching with all these different union flags. And it was just such a beautiful expression of solidarity. That was when I really clued in, like, hey, the working class, this labor movement thing, there's something to this. When I get back from this layoff, I need to start getting involved in this union and really kind of broaden my activism. Unifor is over 300,000 members strong from across the country. And before Unifor, we had CAW and CEP. One was an auto worker, aerospace kind of union, and the other one was paper and energy. In 2014, we had merged to create Unifor. So we have a stronger voice, but most of us, what we're finding now is that we haven't utilized that voice. CW was very militant in the 80s and 90s. I mean, you see from final offer 1984, 
Uh, And final offer is a National Film Board documentary about the negotiations in the auto sector in 1984. This was a pivotal moment in the Canadian section of the United Auto Workers splitting off to become an independent union, the Canadian Auto Workers. The kind of militancy that the union had been and the kind of risks that they wanted to take. And we're finding that instead of taking risks and creating policies that empower workers through the union and across the labor movement, we've kind of dialed back our expectations. So we're hoping with Selenet, we can create more of a space to have these ideas and try to mobilize them and make them a reality. Tell me more about the founding of the Unifor Solidarity Network. Informally, we've been talking for years about the conditions and the direction of the union having informal debates online about, you know, different tactics and strategies that we feel are working or not working. But, you know, through these different conventions and uh, especially social media has broadened our contact so much, I started to see a trend that there was a kind of discontentment amongst a lot of people across the country, not only in just the auto industry that Mike and I work in, but, you know, in other workplaces as well. There were a lot of workers that were upset about the auto contracts and the tiered wages. We felt that that really fractured the union. But there is life in Unifor outside of the big three as well. A lot of people expressed discontent with our ABC policy going into the federal election there last time around. And there was actually an entire NDP staff unit that left Unifor over our cozy relationship with the Liberals. So there's a lot of ideas floating around, a lot of people with strong analysis and critiques. And we don't feel that those ideas are necessarily getting the attention they deserve. That that culture for debate and engagement is kind of repressed. So we all kind of got together and thought, you know what? Let's create a space for this debate to happen, whether you agree with it or not. Let's create somewhere to have these conversations outside of the formal structure of our union, but just amongst the rank and file members whose lives are impacted by these decisions every day. So that's kind of was the driving force behind it. We wanted to create space for rank and file workers to really have these discussions. And we do have a couple like guiding objectives. At our inception, we all got together and said, okay, what are some things that we can agree on to at least provide like a kickoff point? And what we arrived at was, uh, first of all, the need for rank-and-file democracy, real debate, membership engagement, a culture of activism and militancy, not self-advancement and self-enrichment, which unfortunately we do see sometimes. The second objective was working-class politics, so uniform policies and political engagement that advance the interests of our members as part of the working class, so no support for parties that act for the corporate class. And the last one that we touched on was bargaining for solidarity. So bargaining strategies that build unity amongst our members by reducing inequalities in wages, benefits, and pensions, not increasing them and creating this eternal schism in our locals. And maybe expand on a couple of the issues that you mentioned that perhaps not all listeners might know much about. Like, talk more about tiered wages. The company was playing hardball, as they always do. They came to the union and said, look, you know, we need some flexibility here back in 2006, I believe. And we agreed, okay, you can hire these supplemental workforce employees, but it was meant to be a stopgap, right? It was meant to get us through a transitioning phase, but it became, you know, you give them an inch, they take a mile. That's how all these corporations work. So eventually a couple contracts go by. In the 2012 contract, we went into the ratification meeting and what was presented to us was that, okay, you're going to have the option to come on as a full seniority member. You're going to take a bit of a hit in pay from 24 down to $20 an hour. And initially in 2006, they were making 28. So we've seen a steady decline in wages until the recent agreement. But it's really fractured the union because you have a, one guy working across from someone else who's making, you know, 32, 15 or 34, depending, you know, maybe they're in trades or something. And then the person right across them that's only making 70%, or they brought out a second tier of supplemental workers that were only making 60% of those wages. 
none of the benefits until our last contract, no pension until our last contract where we now have a defined contribution pension instead of defined benefit. So it's kind of like a glorified RRSP. So, you know, it's created a lot of inequality. And, you know, we've given up concessions that people fought for for generations and really took to the streets, shut down factories. They really fought for these things. And we gave them up because we were afraid of capital flight, which is, in our opinion, not the right stance to take when you're supposed to be standing for union principles. And talk more about the controversy around the union's decisions about how to relate to elections and the ABC or anyone but conservative approach. The ABC campaign, it was kind of a tough pill to swallow because back in CW, we did support labor parties like the NDP, and we didn't really have a support for liberals until Buzz Hargrove put a CW code around Paul Martin's shoulders. The ABC policy was kind of flawed because in one way, yes, we want to stop a conservative government, but what are we doing in the meantime? Like, we're not really setting a position. We're just trying to stop one party from getting in rather than trying to say, well, no, we don't agree with the liberals on this. We don't agree with the liberals on that and make a staunch support of the NDP party or something like that rather than just say, well, whoever's got the best possible chance to win in your writing, you vote for them instead of the conservative. So it really, it it was a mixed bag, in my opinion. The liberals, they're the party of Bay Street, right? It's no surprise. They have corporate interests. They're corporate-backed. They're the same neoliberal garbage that the conservative government is. Their policies, economic policies, maybe their social policy is a little bit less harsh in some ways. And in other ways, it's an exact mirror. They're like conservative light. So for the labor movement or for any particular union to support them on any issue really is unprincipled because they're not the party of workers. They don't represent working class interests. They've historically always sold out workers. And only when the left, in particular the labor movement, has put all their eggs behind pro-worker parties and other forms of direct action outside of electoral politics have we really seen any movement from the liberals who have been in power. So we just feel that it's a failed strategy and it flies in complete contradiction to our union principles. And tell me more about the website. We welcome people who completely disagree with us, people who agree with us. We want to have those discussions and create a space for a serious critical analysis of what we need to do as rank and file members, what really represents us. And we're pretty horizontal. We don't have any leaders. We're just a group of people. Anybody can sign up to become a contributor. I've got a lot of private messages after we launched saying, you know, we completely support what you're doing. It's great. This is long overdue. But again, because of the culture of fear and reprisals that has existed in the upper echelons of our union, people are afraid to come out publicly or even sign on publicly as contributors. And we think that's going to change, you know, as people see that we're not going away, we're going to stick to our guns here, we're going to keep having these conversations. And, you know, we really encourage anyone from any different local in any sector in Unifor to sign up, write something down, critique something that we've written, just to engage in that conversation, because unless we have these conversations, we're going to keep spinning our wheels here with these failed strategies. We want to start to inspire more from across the country, not just simply in our local specifically, but across the country. That speaking out and speaking up should mean that you could become marginalized from the leadership within your own union. We find that sometimes that's what's happening, and that's why some are afraid to speak out. So we figure if we kind of get this ball rolling, more will join. Particularly given the size and breadth of Unifor, and the fact that it's still pretty early days for the Solidarity Network, what parts of the union do you think you've had success in reaching rank-and-file workers, and where do you think you still haven't managed to do that? So far, it's been a lot of auto 
the auto industry is such a huge part of Unipor, but that's changing, right? With the way manufacturing has been going over the last couple of decades. So we work in Oshawa. We've talked to people in Windsor at plants down there, Brampton, folks out in Ottawa, even folks up in Northern Ontario that have been working in different industries. Where we haven't cracked into yet really is a lot of the communications, uh, energy workers, things like that. So that's kind of the hope is that we grow from being Ontario and auto-centric to really going coast to coast because, you know, we've connected with those people and had conversations, but it just doesn't have the same kind of traction yet with those folks. So that's kind of where we're hoping to go with it. I think it's important, too, that not only different sectors, but even newer members that come into these workplaces that may never have been a part of a union before. And we just want to be able to remind them that the power of the union comes from the shop floor, from the people that belong to the union and not the leadership. At the end of the day, we are the ones that have the power in the union. So we need to be kind of causing it of that. So it's very important that we engage the newer members and those that have become kind of dissatisfied over the years as well. You've alluded to the possibility of consequences from the union leadership for speaking out on these kinds of questions. What form can those consequences take? There's a number of things, right? As a young worker, I experienced it a little bit as well, but there are all sorts of different equity-seeking groups that historically have been shut out of some of these conversations. It's getting better. It's improving because there are a lot of fantastic people. Even in our leadership, there are great people with great ideas. But, you know, when you really start rocking the boat and challenging the accepted doctrine, there's a real chance that you'll have barriers placed in front of you, you know, access to certain conventions, maybe educational opportunities. There's always whisper campaigns that go around. It happens in our local. It happens in every local, really. Wherever you find a hierarchy, there will be people that are there that sometimes lose sight of what we're actually trying to do as a union and become more concerned about controlling the direction of it and keeping it, you know, respectable, quote unquote, when really what we need to be doing is fighting and including people in those conversations, even if we disagree with what they're saying. So people have been uh, stripped of appointments. I won't go into any particular names because I don't want to throw anyone under the bus yet that's not comfortable speaking publicly about things. But yeah, there, there are reprisals, right? People are overlooked for positions. Things are shifted around, but it's really not what the labor movement should be about, and it really weakens us. So beyond the website, how are you hoping that the Solidarity Network develops? Like, are you eventually hoping to have an organized presence at conventions? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we're hoping as well, sometimes different locals put forward resolutions that they want to gain support for at uh, conventions or the constitutional convention, uh, you know, regional council, things like that. So that's a part of it, too, is broadening the connection of that activist base and saying, look, like we're putting forward this motion on X, Y, Z. What do you think of it? Would your local get behind this? Do your union activists support this? How can we push this forward as an agenda and really create some movement and change here? So we want to create a space that's capable of being a political force, but not one that's led by any person in particular or any structure. It's about having those organic rank and file conversations and building from there. I think a lot of what Solonet came from was that idea of where we have been dictated to. So we wanted a space where we could actually flesh out our ideas without being told, no, you can't do this. No, that's not how we do that. Instead, you know, we kind of foster these ideas and inspire one another to create these ideas and make them into a reality. You mentioned earlier the fact that there's a history of equity-seeking groups experiencing exclusion in the labor movement and that it's getting better, but there's still work to be done. What role do you think the Unifor Solidarity Network can play in those struggles? Well, I think what Solonet can provide is a space for them that they can speak out in that nature. 
Corey alluded to it when conventions arise. Many of these things that equity-seeking groups try to do is make these resolutions at convention time. And with all in that, if we can build on these ideas ahead of time before a convention and start the ball rolling there and get that kind of support and offer a space that they can use to promote those kind of ideas and new ways to be included. What kinds of experiences have you had of having conversations with other workers on the shop floor? meaning especially people who aren't already activists, who don't already buy into the core ideas that have guided you as you founded the Solidarity Network? You know, it's a tough conversation. It's really a long game here. We're not going to go out in a big bang here. It takes time to shift a culture that's been ingrained in workers for decades now. A lot of people are timid. Maybe they've accepted this as how it is because this is all they've known since they've been a worker. So to them, this is normal because they haven't had the benefit or opportunities maybe of looking back at our broader history and seeing what's really going on here. So it's tedious. We're fighting the game of inches here, right? I find what works really well is kind of depoliticizing the conversation, talking about specific issues like, hey, uh, you know, do you think you should be able to stay home when you're sick and not lose money? And they're like, well, yeah, of course. There are a lot of common sense issues, just to use that as one example. So it's baby steps, right, with people to politicize the issues afterwards and show them with this union, we can actually fight and win all these things if we march in the same direction. But it's very trying because we're all in a different part of the curve, right? And you can't just snap your fingers and create class consciousness. You have to lay the opportunity out for people. If they take it, that's great. If they don't, then, you know, that's at the end of the day, people have to take individual ownership and realize that they are the union. The union isn't some nebulous thing that, you know, they call down when there's a problem. It's not just a service. It's so much more than that. And that, that takes time to create that culture. So as you've alluded to, part of the context for what Solonet is doing is that particularly on the auto side of Unifor, there's a real history of militancy, a real history of activism, and then a a pulling back from that in more recent years. What would you say to people who respond to what you're doing by saying, well, times have changed? Things are tougher now for workers and for unions, and it's important to be more careful. Well, it's a great question, actually, and it's one that was actually posed to myself when I had a chance to view final offer with Sam Ginnett, who was an assistant to Bob White back in 1984 during those negotiations. And it was quite interesting coming from the last round of auto negotiations, where They want to say times have changed, but you look in 1984, GM was making record profits. You fast forward to 2016, GM's still making record profits. The difference is, unfortunately, the workforce at our plant has lowered, but we created Unifor to have a bigger voice, a bigger power. Yet, all we did was We did get investment, but we did it on the backs of our newer workers. And we did that with two-tiered bargaining, with the elimination of a defined contribution plan. So when they say times have changed, I'd argue that it really hasn't changed, just our expectations have. I mean, GM was still making record profits. Sure, they don't have the market presence that they did back in the 80s, but they're still making record profits. And as workers, we've provided that profit for them and should be able to have a fair share of that pie. And just to add on to that, people say that, you know, times have changed and, you know, times have changed. These neoliberal governments have really dug in their heels here and clawed back all these gains that historically we've made. Times are harder, right? These large multinational corporations do have more mobility. You know, they can shutter a plant here, there, play shell game with the livelihoods of thousands of people at the drop of a hat. So that's fair. That has changed. But what hasn't changed is the fundamental relationship between labor and capital. 
We would do well to remember that, that our work is what turns all of industry. We have the largest private sector union, over 310, I think it's 316,000 members now. If we're bringing all these people together into this one big union here, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to continually say times have changed, we need to take a measured, careful approach? Or are we going to realize as workers that actually none of this can function without our work and that if we were to all come together, we could stop the entire economy at the drop of a hat? And we really could. When we do these campaigns and fight for these reforms, they're important, certainly, right? I mean, I'm not going to be calling for a general strike tomorrow when there's you know, a guy down the street from me that can't eat and needs access to a better wage, like $15 an hour, right? I, we do need to work on those campaigns and things like that. But really, we have all the power. We just don't realize it because we control everything. And how would you relate the work of the Unifor Solidarity Network to the big picture context in terms of the overall state of the labor movement, in terms of the state of the economy and of politics, not just in Canada, but in the United States, where things are looking particularly bad for workers and for unions these days? If we look to America, you know, uh, the rise of Trump and fascism, the harsh economic realities of neoliberalism have created space for the rise of the alt-right, you know, fascism, because people are looking for somewhere to put the blame, right? And without that class consciousness, without real militant examples of defiance from organized labor, they're going to suck up into this vacuum and be brought into these reactionary spaces. And when we look at what Bernie Sanders achieved down in the States, by no means is Bernie perfect, but he really invigorated the youth of America to stand up and say, you know what, hold the phone here. We're getting screwed. We need to fight. We can do better. And, you know, we can look to Jeremy Corbyn, too. People said, oh, you know, he's too radical. He's too far left. He's never going to win. And look at the great gains that he made by taking a bold stance on critical social issues. So I think what the labor movement needs to do is stop playing defense and start going on the offense because history has shown that's how you invigorate rank and file workers. That's how you invigorate your community to stand behind you when you take principled stands and fight tooth and nail for them regardless of the consequences, because if we keep playing this race to the bottom and accepting things, we're going to be left with crumbs at the end of the day. A lot of people already are. So, you know, the labor movement as a whole needs to become less friendly with the government and needs to really grow into its shoes and remember how strong it can be when it actually puts boots on the ground and actually digs in and fights. And to close the interview, why don't you make your pitch for the Unifor Solidarity Network to any Unifor members that might be listening? If you're a member of Unifor and you have ideas and you think that things could be better and that our pushback could be stronger and that we deserve better as workers instead of taking these concessionary agreements, maybe you feel disenfranchised by our political direction, our support for some of these corporate parties, donations to conservatives from some people in our leadership. If that stuff draws a little bit of anger from you, then we'd love to hear from you. Anybody can be a member. All you have to do is email us or check out the website, solonet.ca. If you'd like to be a contributor, it's info at solonet.ca. Shoot us an email. You can have an informal discussion. We respect the privacy of everybody, so don't think we're going to throw you under the bus or sell you out to your leadership. If you're afraid, that's okay. Just talk to us. Engage and get your point of view out there because it deserves to be heard because we're all workers. You have been listening to my interview with Corey Weir and Mike Mutimer. They are rank-and-file auto workers and members of Unifor, and they helped to found the Unifor Solidarity Network. To learn more about their work, or if you yourself are a member of Unifor and you want to share your thoughts on issues in your workplace and in your union, go to solinet.ca. That's S-O-L-I-N-E-T dot C-A. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, 
go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Your